Stories! We all have them. Some are mass-produced, some are artisanal, like my hand-etched, personally-stippled, locally-sourced bee leash. Walk your bees. Yes, I got it in Williamsburg. How did you know? Because of stories? Welcome to Fuzztown Stories. Today's tale, Carla's Brush With Teeth. It's well known that the Toothstronauts were a regular feature of the Sunshine Smile Hour going back to its inception. When they first premiered the segment, it was during a time of a renewed space craze which was sweeping the country. The craze was responsible for the film Space Wife, and it came from up there, as well as the musical albums Zero Gravity, Hot Space, and Save Me a Ride on Your Rocket, Mr. Alien, This Planet is Too Crowded, and its follow-up, Save Me a Ride on Your Rocket, Mr. Alien, This Planet is Too Crowded, also. This interest in space was seen by Brushworth Sunshine as a golden opportunity to increase viewership. Brushworth was always looking to climb up the ratings and fend off competition. So, the Toothstronauts were born. They were an instant hit, doing no small part to their revealing costumes. The novelty of making them all women was seen as a something-for-papa moment in the show, which would also explain why Betty was always dropping things and picking them up. This, of course, is not proven, but, I mean, just watch it. And he did. Over and over. It was a different time. Anyway, the most famous and long-lasting Toostronaut was Carla Gumdonowitz, who would eventually become the captain. She was well-known on the show for her feathered hair and off the show for the strong editorial she'd write in the Star-Ledger. She, in her youth, married a man named Whitey Whitney. They met at a singles night at a local supermarket. If you put a bunch of bananas and stuck them through the bars on the card, it meant you were looking for love. They pushed their carts in tandem as Cousin Brucie guest DJed a set of Motown love songs from the produce aisle. Soon grocery aisles and bell peppers led to walking down the aisle and wedding peppers. Whitey sold CB radios and enjoyed fried chicken. These twin loves would often lead to his pants being stained with grease and oil from fried chicken and CB radios. It would also lead to his death via heart attack just as he was about to sell the GR2010, the most expensive CB radio in the store. The GR2010 was called the Holy Grail, and whoever was able to sell it was promised a free week at the owner's timeshare in Tampa. But dead men don't take vacations, and Whitey passed on before the sale was finalized. Eventually, the owner sold the business and his timeshare. Carla mourned Whitey's death in her own way. She wasn't one to publicly display emotion. On the show, she did her famous asteroid jump, and in fact, most viewers had no idea she had lost her husband. A month or two after Whitey's death, she donated all his belongings to a thrift store and got a small apartment above a bowling alley-slash-pizza restaurant called Pepperoni Strikes. This would upset her daughter, Tina, who was already angry about life. Carla called Tina her little lake because of the mess of hair that fall over one of her eyes and made her look like Veronica Lake. Tina didn't like the name and thought Little Lake was a reference to a pond that Tina fell into once. 
Before Whitney's death, the two would snipe at each other, and Tina once said, Toothstronaut? More like Goofstronaut, which caused Carla to cry. After Whitey died, their relationship worsened. Tina dedicated her life to anachronistic anarchism and the ideas of a particular black leather-bound book that will not be mentioned. And even though she was only 13 at the time, she ran away from home. Carla looked for her, but there was no trace. Carla set up a small website called Where'sTina.com, but the fact that a popular film called Here's Tin A, which had the popular website Here'sTina.com released at the time, meant most of the web traffic was accidental via film fans who added an extra W and misplaced the dot. Instead of tips about Tina, she mostly got emails asking to explain the plot hole involving Arthur's trip to the pet store. Carla would stay on the sunshine smile hour even when the younger Brushy took over after his father's death. Though Brushy Jr. and Carla often clashed over the segment scripts, by this time she felt a strong sense of ownership and wanted to include more seaweed-based causes. Carla had become the leading advocate for seaweed protection and started the Weedlers, a seaweed protection group. She even testified before Congress. Her most famous act was boarding a Japanese seaweed collecting boat and refusing to leave until all the seaweed was thrown back. Also, we'd be remiss not to mention her painting the words, Nori is murder on the restaurant Nobu in New York City. Brushy would argue that there's no seaweed in space, and she'd tell him maybe there's no Carla Gumdonowitz either. They compromised and created spaceweed, which eventually became code for a synthetic club drug, and they dropped that from the show. Carla then left the Sunshine Smile Hour to pursue activism full-time. It was during this time that she met Halden Smythe, Halden was a longtime freegan and before that a well-known gutter punk. He had fronted the Screamo band Dollar Sign Exclamation Point, which was pronounced Rick. In any event, Halden and Carla bonded over their mutual love of nature. Also, his sensibilities reminded Carla of her daughter, even though Halden was in his mid-40s. He still wore flannel pants, though. Together, they planned a big event that would show the world how important saving the ocean seaweed would be. Their plan was to flood City Hall and fill it with sea urchins. But the problem was they had no idea how to do this. First, flooding the building would be hard because it was not watertight, but they decided that they'd plug the holes as they found them with silly putty. Next, obtaining the number of sea urchins needed seemed daunting. They ended up meeting a black market urchin broker named Fat Thomas. What they didn't know was that Fat Thomas was secretly a fish and game officer working undercover to bust the Spines Syndicate, a big player in the illegal urchin market. Fat Thomas was afraid that these eco-yahoos would blow his cover and he'd lose the chance to bust Yoshido Takama, head of the Spine Syndicate and the urchin smuggling king. So Fat Thomas decided in order to keep his cover, he'd have to kill both Carla and Halden. 
He lured them to an abandoned condo development deep on Staten Island. Carla and Halden arrived at the abandoned condo hoping to pick up several crates of sea urchins, but instead found themselves at the barrel end of a gun. Fat Thomas had them right where he wanted them. However, he didn't realize that this condo complex was famous as a haunted site. It was built on an ancient pet cemetery where colonists would bury their pets and finer donkeys before the American Revolution. Because of this, it was a popular place for ghost hunting. It was on that very night that the Staten Island Haunt Friends were exploring the condos. The Staten Island Haunt Friends was actually just Pete Goborelli. He had named the group in hopes that it would attract more members, but at present it was just him. So, as Fat Thomas leveled his gun at Carla, Pete Goborelli burst in with his ghost detector, a spoon with a fork taped to it, and tripped and fell. The ghost detector broke, and the spoon flew into the air just as Fat Thomas fired the gun. The spoon crossed in front of the bullet's path. The bullet hit the spoon, ricocheted off, and went into the ceiling. Normally, this would not be an issue, except that a vagrant arsonist was keeping a large collection of flammable tanks of hydrogen in the upstairs back bedroom. Luckily, a single stray bullet won't cause hydrogen tanks to burst into flame, but it did startle the aforementioned arsonist who was testing the gas at the time. The startled arsonist dropped her lighter and it hit the ground. This alone would not be a problem, except the arsonist had built a remote control truck and covered it in matches. She called it the real matchbook truck, which was very funny in arsonist circles. But this real matchbook truck wasn't funny when the lighter hit it and the truck went up in a whoosh of flame. This would be bad enough if the arsonist didn't panic upon seeing the flaming truck, and as she grabbed the truck's remote control, accidentally dropped it. The broken remote caused the truck to take off and drive down the stairs. Now, while all of this was happening upstairs, Fat Thomas was furious that the spoon deflected his bullet because he only brought the one. He was trying to save his money to get his boyfriend a genuine shark skin grip handle katana sword from QVC. Finding himself without bullets, he decided instead to beat Carla, Halden, and ghost hunter Pete to death with the gun. He charged at them gun drawn back when suddenly the flaming truck came hurtling down the stairs and crashed into Fat Thomas. Now, pants don't usually burst into flame, but... You see, Fat Thomas liked to buy vintage clothes, and he was currently garbed in a pair of pants that were soaked in old grease, both chicken and CB radio. The unnatural polyester blend absorbed these oils and had created a veritable tinderbox with two leg holes. So it was that Carla was saved by her own dead husband's donated pants. Fat Thomas ran off into the night, pants ablaze. Carla and Halden had no idea what to do next. There were no urchins, see or otherwise. What should we do, they wondered. Pete suggested going for burgers at the Unicorn Diner, but this was quickly dismissed. In any event, they should leave and were about to when the sound of the arsonist's boots clicking on the stairs caught their attention. Carla turned as the arsonist stepped out of the shadow of the stairs. 
The arsonist and Carla stopped and stared at each other. The arsonist pushed her purple hair from in front of her eyes where it had fallen, a move she'd done a thousand times. A move that Carla knew as well as her own fingertips. Little Lake? is all Carla managed to say. The arsonist's face scrunched up and all she managed was... Mom? And indeed, it was Tina. She'd been hiding in Staten Island all this time. Mother and daughter embraced and then everyone went out for pizza. Except for Pete who didn't like pizza. But he was okay with it. Fusstown Stories is a Roy Gold production. It was written by Jonathan Goldberg with music by David Riglieri. Today's episode was read by Melissa Lusk. That's me! And, like me, Podmusical can be found on the internet at podmusical.com and on Twitter at the Podmusical. Also like me, Podmusical has an extra set of eyes for viewing into dreams. It's not weird. It's how I keep one step ahead of the ghosts. As always, thanks for listening and have a suntabulous bicuspid of a day. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.